We're going to pick up in Mark 8, chapter 27 today. And uh, this is one of those familiar passages of Scripture, but it's one of those passages that, again, so many times we can read over these passages and just kind of go with what we've gone with through the years, you know, without really applying ourselves to hear fresh and new from the Lord. So I just want to take a look at this passage of Scripture and just, uh, I titled this sermon this week, Who Am I to You? Jesus is asking the disciples and He's asking a very uh, small crowd at first. We're going to take a look at it, what He asked them about who do men say that I am or what's What's the public perception out there of who I am? But in particular, you know, you know, he gets down to the, the nitty-gritty. I don't know what the nitty-gritty is, I guess, but he gets down to that. And he asks the question, but who do you say that I am? And we're going to take a look at this passage, but I want you, uh, I ask of you this morning to open your hearts, open your minds, and put yourself in that crowd. Put yourself in that circle of people within earshot of the King of Glory Himself because He's on His throne in heaven asking us this question this morning. He's still asking that question from every person that's ever born on the, on the earth. So, without any further ado, um, we'll read the Word, but before we do that, let's do pray again and ask God to come meet with us. Lord, we do not take it for granted that you are manifesting your rich presence among your people. We can be present here in body and not be here in spirit. We can be here in spirit and not be here in body. But Lord, unless your Holy Spirit comes down and manifests your presence among your people, God, Nothing has been done. It's all vanity. So God, this morning, Holy Spirit, Lord, we, we ask you to come and inhabit the praise of your people. We ask you, Lord, to open our hearts, our minds, that God, that we would drink in uh, like precious food and, and, and water for a thirsty soul, that God, that we would take in the Word of God. And that we'd leave, we would leave here better than when we came. And that God, you will have done something among your people and we'll leave here saying it has been good to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you for this church family. God bless us with your presence again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's read our text and we'll get started. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27 says this, And when Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and by the way he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And that, that word in the King James, ye, 
is always plural, but this in particular is an irregular plural. For all of you non-grammarians like me, I had to go back to high school to remember all this stuff. But an irregular plural, yes, it does mean the crowd at large, but it also means he is speaking to each individual within that crowd. So, in other words, you can't hide behind your neighbor. Who do you guys say he is, but in particular, who do you, every individual in this room, say that I am? So get that picture. All right, we go on. And Peter answered, and he saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. <clears throat> and when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Amen and amen. I want to start off by this passage of scripture by stating, look at, look at where he's going to. I was, uh, I was looking at a map this morning in the, in the back of my Bible because, you know, sometimes we forget that Jesus, even though he's the most popular person, the most known individual that's ever lived on planet Earth, even, even God deniers know who Jesus is. Amen? Even atheists, they talk about God. They hate, they hate him, but they still talk about him. This man that in human history of all the billions of people that have ever inhabited this planet, we're still talking about him 2,000 years later, never left a little circle of earth. It would be like me never leaving the state of Louisiana. 
Or even greater yet, me never leaving northeast Louisiana. Because you, you can put all of Israel as it is today, you can put it in Louisiana and have a lot of room left over, right? So get this picture in your mind. He's just left Bethsaida, which is um, up there on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, fairly close to his, uh, his, his mode of operation was in Capernaum. And, it, and Bethsaida is over there a little bit to the east of that. He'd, he had healed this blind man, and now all of a sudden he's taken a direct course north, and he's in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. He's in this area which is up toward Mount Hermon. You've heard of Mount Hermon in the scriptures. He's up in that direction. He's kind of he's up in the wilderness. He's, uh, he's, not, he's not anywhere near any big cities. And it says in Luke's account of this, that back up just a second, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all three give this account. John doesn't. And all three of these different gospel writers give us a little different look at this. Mark gives us really some, in a way, some scant details that Matthew and Luke give us more detail, but Mark's gospel has a purpose in it. Remember, it's written to basically the Roman world, and it's written from a servant's perspective. So they don't care about bloodlines, they don't care about kingship like they do in Matthew's gospel, they don't care about his Jewish background, they don't care about any of that. But it says that in Luke's gospel, it says, and I thought this was really interesting, he, as he was praying alone, and the disciples were with him, during this prayer time, it comes into the mind of the King of Glory, God in human flesh. I'm going to take a public poll and ask my disciples what's being said about me. I thought that was really interesting that God would take a poll. Because you, you get this picture in your mind, don't you? God really doesn't care what you think. Amen? He really doesn't care what I think. He's never called down from his throne and said, Jeff, what would you do in this situation? <laughs> because I don't have a clue. Most of the time, I don't know if I'm washing or hanging out anyway. I'm just proud to be here, amen? So what is, what is his goal? In, what, what was the thought process? The, the Lord of glory, God in flesh, is praying, and in his prayer time, it's put into his heart. I'm going to ask the guys what, who people are saying I am. Now, there's a couple of different directions we can go with this. And this is what I want us to apply to ourselves. We are very bold in saying many times, especially those of us that are Christians, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Have you ever said that? Y'all can be honest, it's Sunday morning, amen? Have you ever said that? I don't care what they say. God knows who I am. 
That is true in one sense. It's absolutely true in one sense. A true born-again follower of Jesus Christ should not pay attention to critics who only want to tear them down. But at the same time, does it matter what other people think of you? Of course it does. Don't lie to yourself and don't lie to me and tell me it doesn't because it does. Public perception of who we are on one hand doesn't matter at all and on the other hand it, it matters. It, it has everything to do with it. Because you see, what, do, what does the lost crowd say about the church nowadays? It's full of hypocrites. They don't do this, they don't do that. You know what, if that's true, it does matter what they think about us. If it's false, it matters what they think about us. Because either way, we're responsible for our witness on this earth. They're not going to be able to stand before a holy God in judgment one day and say, well, that bunch down there at Alls Chapel, they were a bunch of hypocrites. That may be true, may not be true. I don't think it is. But here's the deal. They're responsible for the gospel witness that was in their community and in their life. Now, public perception is important, but only in the fact of I'm giving my testimony to men wherever I go and wherever I am. Whether I'm sitting in the church building on Sunday morning or whether I'm at Walmart and someone has broken in line in front of me and I want to show them the right hand of Christian fellowship and give them a blessing. It matters not. What matters is what I am in my heart. Now, they can have the wrong perception of me. Have you ever been ill-received Ill because people had this picture of you that wasn't really true? But Jesus is saying, who are men saying that I am? And they give him this list. They say, number one, John the Baptist, and some of them say Elijah. And in Matthew's account, he adds Jeremiah. And, and I, I find this interesting in Mark's account. It says one of the prophets. Now, it's, uh, one is capitalized in this King James Bible. Now, in the other two gospel accounts, it says something similar, but the, the, the word one is not capitalized. What's the meaning of this, preacher? In the law, in Moses' law, and in, in the, back in the Old Testament in the prophets, he told, God told Moses, there's coming a prophet after you. He's going to, he's going to be the, he's the Messiah. That's what he's saying. He is the Messiah. He's different from all others. So what, what Mark is alluding to is here is that some of them are saying, you are the Messiah. You're our Savior. 
Some of them were. Some of them were saying John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Some of them were saying it was this guy, it was Elijah, it was this. and Some of them were saying, we think you're him. Doesn't name them. But that is the public perception out there. But then, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Just like he always does. He never minces words. He doesn't play around. This is, you know, he's not trying to manipulate you. He says, but who do you say that I am? Now, there's two responses to this, this question this morning. Who does Auld's Chapel say as a local body, as the ecclesia that lives in this location and meets here in this building on Sundays and Wednesday evenings, who does Auld's Chapel say that Jesus is? But then more in particular, not in a general sense, but in a particular sense, who do you say, every individual in this building this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? And that's a question that we're all going to have to answer. My lo our local congregation, the gathering in West Monroe, they're meeting right now. They're, they're full-blown going. And they're having to answer that same question. What, what does the lost world think of and what do they talk about when they talk about Alt's Chapel out here in this community? What do people think about the gathering? We need to go around and take a public poll occasionally to let us know where we are. Because it is important how we're perceived. Whether, whether we're perceived correctly or not, that's not the point. The point is, we need to get out in the world and take a poll. Because God will teach us something through what the public thinks of you and I. There'll be something good There'll be something constructive come from it. Now, it may be a little destructive at first, <laughs> but eventually if we give it to God, it'll turn out for our good. Amen? So sometimes we need to take a little public poll. But then we move on in our text, and we see the death of popularity. I'm so glad that things are the way they are in the world right now, and that God is beginning to separate the wheat from the chaff and He's making it hard to be a Christian again because that's really the only way of a true believer. You, took, you take on the cross. We don't take on popularity, wealth, and fame. And the American church has been going in the wrong direction for generations now and we're paying the price for it. When did the devil ever get it into our minds that church people, that God's people, that believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, that it was a popular way, that it was, the, it was easy peasy? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? That's an old hymn. We don't sing that one much anymore. It's not popular. But Jesus is telling us suffering is necessary. Look at verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. 
He was going to be rejected of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. In other words, all of the religious leaders of his day, they turned their backs on him. They said he deserved death. And he said, I'm going to be killed. And then after three days, I'm going to rise again. And now Peter who just a, just a verse or two before went to the head of the class because he was the first one to speak up, right? He asked that, Jesus asked him that question, who do you say that I am? Peter was the first one to answer. I love Peter. First one to answer. And Jesus said, you're correct, but don't tell anybody right now. But come on to the head of the class, Peter. You're absolutely right. In fact, in Matthew's gospel it said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. So in other words, he told Peter, he said, you got it right, and only God could tell you that. And then, two verses later, two or three verses later, he begins to teach them that, well, I've got to die, I've got to suffer, I've got to be afflicted. And Peter begins to rebuke him in verse 32. And he said, "Mm -mm, that's not the way it's going to be, Lord. You'll never, no, this ain't going to happen. And then he looks on the disciples and he rebukes Peter. Get to the back of the class, Peter. (laughs) You still got a lot to learn. And we all do. And church, I want to tell you something this morning. I don't like persecution any better than you do. I don't like suffering. I don't like affliction. I don't get up in the mornings and get on my knees and go, God, would you send me some pestilence? Would you destroy my family? Would you take my job away from me where I can't make a living and unable to pay my... Would you make me homeless? Could I suffer for you? Would somebody pull up to the barber shop and ask me if I'm a follower of Jesus and I say yes and would they blow my brains out on Tuesday morning? That's a good way to... I don't do that. I don't think you do either. But that's what he's asking us to be willing to do. Amen? Because I've already died to myself. I don't belong to myself. I belong to Him. And I know He wants what's best for me. Right? I just don't like the way He goes about His business a lot of times. And so then, He tells them this in verse 33. He says, You don't savor the things that are of God, but the things that are of men. In other words, and all of the more modern uh, English translations, it says you're not mindful of the things of God. And that's, that's what it is. It's a mindset. But there's a, there's a reason that the King James translators translated that savorist because the word mindful is in the King James Bible as well. So there had to be a reason that he used a little different language in that. And here's where, here's where the rub comes in. He says, you're not wanting the full experience of suffering along with me. Because you see, that's what happens when the devil and the world persecute the church of the living God. 
we are getting to experience the cross with Him. Because you see, we can't bear His cross. Jeff Robinson, Jesus didn't say, take up my cross and follow me, did He? He didn't tell the twelve, He said, go back, get my cross, and drag it around and follow me. He said, you take your cross. The first step in cross-bearing is denying self and letting Christ in me. Allowing Him to have His way. So what he's saying here is, you take your cross, you die to yourself, and then you, you get a small, minute taste of what it was like. The hell I took for you. Until we understand that we deserve judgment, we're never fit for heaven. Would you agree with me on that? I think there are a lot of professing Christians in America that don't have a clue what it really means to have their sin done away with. Because we treat sin very flippantly in America. We sweep it under the rug. We giggle at it. We do a lot of things, but we need to put it under the blood because sin will kill you. Do you know that God in the Bible has even killed born-again believers for lying to Him? Go read Acts chapter 5. It's in there. There was a couple that lied to the Holy Spirit of God and God struck them dead. You don't think sin something big? It's got to be done away with. It's got to be annihilated. And that's all part of it. Being mindful of the things of God. Less of me, more of Jesus. All the time. It's the only way to go. So, the death of popularity. Thank God that it's over with. The church is not popular in America anymore. The culture around us has changed, folks. They don't receive us anymore. They don't respect us. They hate us. And that's always the way it's been. Don't, don't be fearful of that. And don't feel bad about that. You're just doing what Jesus said all along. If you follow me, they're going to hate you. Does that mean... The popularity poll is over? <laughs> Pretty much. If they see Jesus in us, that's all we need to be worried about. Amen? Amen. And the last thing I want to talk about is the, the power and the beauty that comes through that persecution that, we just, that we're talking about. He, he told the people here, starting in verse 34, he said, Whosoever is going to come after me, Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life is going to lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. One of the things he does is starting there in verse 36, he teaches us how to value the things of eternity. He says, What shall it profit a man if he'll gain the whole world and lose his own soul. I want to ask you that question this morning. 
What good is houses, land, vehicles, retirement, insurance, all of these things if I lose my own soul? I have nothing. This body is going to die one day. It's going to fade away. It's in, it's in decay right now. But it's going to die one day. And when it does, my spirit is immediately going to be in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to be more alive that moment than I've ever been in my existence. Would you agree with me on that? So what profit is it to me to gain the whole world for myself and lose my own soul in the process? Absolutely nothing. God has taught me a different value system. You see, years ago when I wrestled with the call to preach the gospel and to leave the family farm, my life was wrapped up in in that farm because that was my identity at the time. I was supposed to inherit the farm from my dad and carry on the family. I come from five generations of farmers. Five. And when I left the farm, there's not anyone in my generation now that's still farming. That's heartbreaking in a way. But see, in another way, that's a small price to pay to follow Jesus. Does he call every farmer, every farmer that believes and trusts in him to leave the farm and leave? No, but he did me. And if I'd have held on to the farm, I would have let him go. And I would have lost my own soul in the process. What's God asking you to give up? What's, what's He asking you to trade in that's of the greatest, not, not, the, not the worst of you, not your sin. What is the best thing that you have that God says, I want that. Will you give it to me? You've got to learn how to value things. We all do. And anything that's more valuable than my relationship to Jesus Christ is an idol and it needs to be put away. So, that's what persecution does to us. It helps us value what's really important and what's not. We live in an affluent society where every little want and whim is available to us. We can, we can get on Amazon and have it at the house in two days, right? Whatever you want. Just charge it. Money don't money's not worth anything anyway. They're printing it by the day. Every day they print some more. It's like monopoly money. It's worthless. It, it is. It's just play. My soul is everything. I can't get real eternal life through Amazon. He won't deliver that to my house. It's going to take a cross. That's the only way, is the cross. Where are you in that process? Are you dying to self every day? I pray you are. I pray we would all be able to say like Paul in Galatians chapter 2. 
I am crucified with Christ. Amen? Amen. And the last thing I want to say to you, His presence is enough in it all. His presence is enough. He says in verse 38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There shall be some that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And most Bible scholars say that that's speaking of the transfiguration that was about to take place on the mountain when he took the disciples and he took the three most intimate ones up there with him and they're up there and they see him translated, they see him physically translated, that glorified body that he was going to receive. Well, guess what, folks? We've got something even better than that. Because what did he tell them after his resurrection, before, right before his ascension? I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send another comforter to you. It was necessary that I go, because if I don't go, the comforter's not going to come. Who is this blessed comforter? The Holy Spirit of the living God, and He dwells in every one of us. He dwells in His church. His presence is always there. Your greatest trials, your greatest victories, you're down in the dirt, you're on cloud nine, you're hungry, you're full, you're sick, you're healthy, you're wealthy, you're poor, whatever it is, He's there with you. Is that not good news? Amen. That's good news this morning. Whosoever will, let them come.